0: After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but not not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Good morning, Midlands Church. Uh, I am so thankful for the opportunity and just blessed to have the opportunity to preach again. Obviously, we, we'd love to meet again soon, and can't wait for that, and we keep mentioning it because we're just so eager to do it. Um, but while we're here, and while we're still studying God's Word, I, I think it can be really beneficial for us, uh, and I, I want to pray to that end before we get going. So Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the technology that we have that... It has enabled us to view this and to listen to your word and and allow you to work through these means. Lord, we pray that your uh, spirit would do that. Lord, we pray that your spirit would soften hearts and, and open ears to your word this morning. Lord, if I say anything that is out of line in any way, Lord, may it fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. But Lord, if it is true to your Scripture true to your gospel, Lord, that it would fall on soft hearts and, and open ears, Lord. May you renew our minds this morning with your word and may we grow in our trust and our knowledge of you this morning. Father, we thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, I've told many of you guys this before uh, and I've said this in sermons past, but I grew up in a large family, and so, and if the quarantine would have happened whenever I was a kid, I don't think anything in my life really would have changed. Uh, I, we were always outside, and we were homeschooled, and so we were playing whenever we got done with school um, already. So, like, the schooling thing wouldn't have been changed. The Our daily activities wouldn't have really changed. Um, and we were always out in the yard and in the in the sport of choice once school was over for the day. Was always baseball, um, especially during the the hotter months of the year. During the fall, we'd sometimes pick up a pigskin and throw the football around. But the sport of choice was definitely baseball, and I can remember uh, as early as being four years old chasing a ball that went over my glove and down the hill, down a cul de sac near our house, and, and into a sewer. And I was I was devastated because that that was the last ball that we had, and that meant that we could no longer play. And from that that point on, I, I kind of grew in my knowledge and love of the sport uh, from t-ball to machine pitch to kid pitch to elementary school to middle school to even high school. And and by the time I was in high school, I was, I, I would say a decent ball player. And that, that would be generous, honestly. Um, I wasn't anything special, but I loved the sport, and I played it constantly. If there's one thing in life at the age of 16 for Aaron Spurlock that he was absolutely certain about, it was the sport of baseball. It was that I, I knew that in that day, whatever day it was, I would be playing baseball to in some capacity, and then the day to follow, I'd be playing baseball in some capacity, and, and the day after that, and the day after that, and and I just knew that If everything else um, hit the fan, if everything else kind of went uh, askew, I would still be throwing the ball in the yard with somebody. Um, That was until one Saturday morning practice um, when I was throwing batting practice to a couple of guys and I was dumb enough to get away from behind the, there's a thing called an L screen. And you stand behind that so that you don't get hit with a ball. Well, I didn't stand behind that far enough. And sure enough, a comebacker came and hit me like right here, like right behind the eye socket and right before the temple. So technically I was really lucky, but in that moment, I fell to the ground. And for the next 20 minutes, I was completely blind. I, I, I was conscious. I was fully awake. My eyes were opening, but I couldn't see a thing. And it was as if in that moment, everything that I was certain about in life literally vanished in a blink of an eye. And I, I tell that story. Obviously, I can see today, and, and the Lord kept me through that. And I was even able to continue to play baseball throughout high school. And it was a good thing. But I I bring that moment up because... I feel like 10 years later as a 26 year old kid I have different points of certainty that I I try to cling to. I have different points in my life that I I want to somehow say I am in control of. Two months ago I was certain about the state of my employment. Two months ago I I was certain that I would have a graduation ceremony next weekend. And two months ago, I was certain that it was illegal to wear masks in a convenience store. And now I feel like it's illegal not to. So I think if, if my certainty is any indication of the certainty within our church, I think if we're honest with ourselves, at the start of 2020, we may have had a sense of certainty that has just completely vanished in the blink of an eye. Whether it's your job or relationships or your health or, um, or the health of your loved ones. Or maybe it's your education. Or maybe it's your certainty about who Christ is and what he's doing. And I think if we're not careful, I think we might end up like the people in verses 11 through 13. And we might find ourselves asking where is God? Where is he? is he? Is he really a good man? Or has, he, has Jesus deceived us all? And, and I, I want to show, one, that that's not necessarily a, a bad thing to bring questions into your mind and have seasons of doubt. But in those seasons of doubt, we are called to go to Scripture, go to God's Word, because that is where we can find the steadfast love of Christ and we can find the character of Christ. And so I think in in seasons of uncertainty, I think there's three things that we're going to see here in the beginning of chapter 7 that would lead us into uh, the verses 11 through 13 with actual answers about who Christ is. And and those three things that I want to show us is, number one, Jesus' example. Jesus' example. And then, number two, Jesus' humanity. And number three, Jesus' sovereignty. Excuse me. So, Jesus' example. In the first verse, it is important to note that those first two words that John uses here, this, this phrase, after this, in verse one, that's where we're going to really focus our, our first point on. And you're like, what in the world? How do I get Jesus's example from that? Well, let, let me show you. Okay. So though our minds might read this, this phrase after this as like, a, okay, well, that must mean that John is moving from the events that, cha- that happened in chapter six and, and it goes right into the events of chapter seven. But that's not necessarily true because in chapter six, verse four, we saw that the feeding of the of the five thousand, or really fifteen or twenty thousand, when you count uh, wives and children, the feeding of the masses happened during the Passover feast, right? And then it says the next day he gave the bread of life discourse in Capernaum in verse twenty-two of chapter six, so. What happened in chapter six was a two day event, right? And now we jump into chapter seven and it's as if the Jewish calendar is confused and there's another festival right around the corner? That doesn't make sense. Well, it's because that's not the case. The case is that the Passover feast happened about six months prior to the feast of Booth. So why did John just leave out six months of Jesus' ministry? Well, I think I think this is implicit here, it's implied here, but it's explicit throughout the rest of the gospel accounts and throughout the rest of this gospel account, and that is that Jesus was intentional about discipleship. So remember and at the end of chapter 6 where the thousands leave Jesus after he gives this hard teaching. And then he looks to his disciples and he says, Are you going to leave too? And as Matt showed last week, that that was not as much of Jesus wondering if they were going to leave. Because it says that he already knew that one of them would leave him. And one of them would betray him. But he asked it so that Peter could answer for them, so that that the disciples could answer this question for themselves. Lord, where else would we go? And so from that point to this point, there are six months of intentional pouring in to the lives of these men. Not only that, prior to chapter 6, at that point, Jesus has already had two years of his ministry. He's already been in his ministry for two years. And during the course of those two years, yes, he has been doing other things like turning water into wine or or meeting with Nicodemus or the woman at the well and, and the rest of the Samaritan community. But at that point, two years into his ministry, he has been pouring in to these men. And then John points out this two-day period where he ministered to the masses. And so, two days he gives to the thousands, and two and a half years he shows with these disciples. What does that tell us? Why is that important? I, I think it is important By looking at the context of of, of these verses, it shows us that this phrase, after this, means that Jesus was intentionally devoting himself to disciple-making. Disciple-making doesn't often look like converting the masses. See, Jesus had the masses at his fingertips right there. And then he gave them this teaching and he knew the hearts of those people and he knew that they were going to leave. But what he did was he focused in on the few. You see, throughout the course of church history, this is how disciples have been made. Yes, there's times and there's instances like in in Acts chapter 2 Where Peter gives this sermon and 3,000 come to the faith. like That is a beautiful picture of the power of the Spirit. But that, and, and things like that, are the exception. They're not the norm. So this timeline that he gives us of two days with the thousands and two and a half years with the disciples is vitally important. To how we understand the Great Commission. If you remember, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his disciples, these disciples, this Great Commission, and he, and he says, Go into all nations making disciples. Right? And then at the end of it, he says, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And so he, he gives them this blueprint. And what is the blueprint that he gives them? This is daily reminding them of the truth, challenging, challenging them towards righteousness, and simply loving them despite their sin. Now the question that you and I must answer because of these two words and because of the timeline that John presents to us is who are the people that we are pouring our lives into? Who, is the, who are the people that are pouring their lives into us? You see, biblical discipleship is marked by long-suffering and a commitment to the gospel. So do you have a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ like that? There is no end to this discipleship process of being poured into and, being, and pouring into others. And Jesus shows us this, and he, and he makes a point to say this was the most important thing that he did in his earthly ministry was with those twelve. And so if that's not true of you, if you don't have somebody pouring into you, and if you're not pouring into someone else, then I want to challenge you this week to find that person. Find that person within Midlands Church. Find that person within your community. Find that person. And begin biblical discipleship, because in seasons of uncertainty... If you're not being discipled, it is very easy to, to be tossed to and fro by the waves of the world. So number one, I think we we get comfort and we get security by looking at Jesus' example when it comes to discipleship uh, as we prepare for seasons of uncertainty. <clears throat> number two, we look to Jesus' humanity. Now Jesus' brothers make this brief reappearance here in John's gospel. And it is apparent why he makes mention of them uh, when he says not even his brothers believed in him in verse 5. But John John is not only making this clear distinction between those who believe based solely on Jesus' works and his signs and miracles, and then those who believed in him like his disciples did because of who he revealed himself to be, the Son of God. And he makes that distinction all throughout the gospel. But I think what he's doing here, and what he has done elsewhere, like in John chapter two, where the brothers first appeared with the mother of Jesus, and then, um, then again in John 6:42, where uh, he gives this bread of life discourse, and then the people say, "Wait, isn't this Joseph's son? How could he say he's coming from heaven?" And then, as you go later into uh, John chapter 7, that, that basically the same thing happens again, where Jesus is claiming to be the Christ, and they say, how can he be the Christ? We know where he's come from. And so, why is the humanity of Jesus important, and what does, this, what does his brothers have to say about his humanity? Well, the fact that he has brothers shows that he has an earthly mother. So yes, he has a heavenly father, but he was also born of a woman. And why is that bringing us any hope in this season? Well, I think there's two things. And one, I think think John is making a clear statement here, and he will make this throughout the rest of the chapter. But this feast that we're in right now, the Feast of Booths, so to speak, or the Feast of Tabernacles, what that was, was symbolizing God dwelling with his people again. God dwelling with his people in the wilderness whenever he dwelt within the tabernacle. We remember this from our Exodus series, and they celebrated God's presence as he dwelt with his people. And we're, and we're, Called back to the beginning of Genesis where, where he dwells with man and woman in the garden. And then he casts them out of his presence because of their sin. And so for all of creation, we have been yearning for this time that God would dwell with us again. That we would be able to dwell with him, and so the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was this celebration of the fact that God came into a specific place and over the course of israel 's history, that place became solomon 's temple right and, and so people would travel to Jerusalem and Judea and would would essentially bring their own makeshift tents that symbolized these these tabernacle places of the Lord where where the Lord would tabernacle with his people or dwell with his people and that eventually morphed in to the feast of booths because all these little tents scattered throughout the city looked like a bunch of booths right and so the feast of booths was symbolizing God's dwelling with his people and the humanity of Christ Is God doing just that? The fact that God from heaven came down from his throne and and took on flesh so that you and I might be able to dwell with him again. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of this feast. Jesus is the fulfillment of this celebration. And he is also the fulfillment of the Passover celebration that we saw last week. And so what John is doing here is saying that you must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. That's the Passover. That's, that is the salvation. That is what brings you salvation. But when you do that, you now dwell with him. He tabernacles with you. These feasts were symbols of, of something greater and they were symbols of Christ. And then number 2, I think we take comfort in the humanity of Christ because of this. He can sympathize with us. You say what I'm not really sure what you're talking about. the emotions that you're feeling, the emotions that I'm feeling, the uncertainty, the sense of lostness the sense of disparity the sense of sadness and grief that we feel day in and day out these feelings were not foreign to our savior hebrews 4:15 says this he says for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin and then later in John chapter 11, we're going to see where Jesus uh, meets up with his, his friend Mary, and he, and he sees that she's crying and weeping, and his spirit is deeply moved and troubled. And then it goes into to him actually weeping, shedding tears over his friend who had died. And yet, he was completely sovereign over that moment. Just a few moments later, he would bring Lazarus back to life. But you see, the weight of sorrow and the weight of sin bared heavily on this man. And and he is not a foreigner to the feelings that you have today. So here's the comfort that that I present to you in Jesus' humanity, is that whatever feelings you might be having during times of uncertainty, you are able to bring it to Christ. He is the full God-man, fully God, fully man. And because of that, he is able to fully sympathize with you in your pain and in your suffering and in your hurt. And he is able to bring that before the Father as our mediator. See, John Calvin says this, He says that Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. So in seasons of uncertainty, we are comforted by number one, Jesus' example, and number two, Jesus' humanity. And lastly, and probably most importantly, in times of uncertainty, is that we are comforted by Jesus' sovereignty. (coughs) Excuse me. Let's look at Uh, Verses 6 through 8 says this, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, and that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Come. Now, it's interesting because the word that is used here by John in quoting Jesus when he says his, his time, the Greek word is kairos, kairos. Now, timing is very important in John's gospel. Uh, and, and oftentimes, no pun intended, uh, oftentimes his, his Greek word that he uses for time is uh, hora, Or Kronos. So Hora, if you remember in John chapter 2 verse 4, whenever he tells uh, his mother that his time has not yet come, he's talking about his trial, his crucifixion, and resurrection. And he does that multiple times. But then the use of Kronos is to focus on the extent of time, like whenever he healed the man who had been lame for an extended period of time in in John 5, 6. See, but And this time, he uses Kairos, and this is the only time in the gospel that he uses it. And most believe that it is because he is trying to tell his brothers that he has a very distinct and appointed time for which he has to enter the festival. Not that he is not coming at all, but that he is just not going when they want him to. And why is that significant? Well, I think it's significant because Jesus puts on display here his total sovereignty. His total sovereignty over every minute detail of his ministry and every, over every minute detail of our lives. Down to the point that he knew when exactly he needed to come into the festival. It reminds me, and this is kind of a nerdy moment, it reminds me of uh, in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo approaches uh, Gandalf whenever he's coming into the Shire, and he says, you're late. And Gandalf simply responds, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And I think there's comfort in seasons that, that we don't know what's going on because Christ knows exactly when he should be working and when he should reveal himself. He's always working. He, we just might not see it. You see, Jesus doesn't work on our timeline, but he is working. His brothers wanted him to go up to the festival in that very moment so he could be celebrated, but Jesus only came when his appointed time had come. You see, I also think that in this moment, Jesus understands that his presence, that his, his uh coming to this festival was going to be needed so that he could bring clarity to confusion. So as you as you see in verses eleven through thirteen, there's a bunch of confusion about who Jesus is, where he is. Was he a good man? Is he a deceiver? And then Jesus, as we'll see later on next week, he comes and he proclaims exactly who he is. And I think right now in this pandemic, the world is asking the same questions that these people are asking. Where is he? Where is your God now? Was he just a good man Or did he simply deceive everyone into thinking he was the Messiah? See, throughout the major events of history in which all of creation groaned in pain and the world was in pain and and had no idea what was going on, they would always look to the church. Always look to the followers of Christ for an answer. And my prayer this morning, is that during this pandemic, that we will not fall into the same temptation of sin that Jesus' brothers did here, thinking that we know what Jesus needs to do in order to win over the world. Jesus simply says in response, Don't you understand? The world will always hate me. If I were to wipe away this virus right now, The world wouldn't give me credit. The world wouldn't look to me. The world hates me because I speak against its works. You see, too often the church tries with all of its might to make the truths of Scripture more palatable to the appetite of the world. And some who claim the name of Christ have have even had some success in that and have accumulated a mass following by rolling out this more popular version of Christianity, this watered down version of Christianity. Yet the clearest truth of this passage is that biblical Christianity is not popular and popular Christianity is often not biblical. So what is our response going to be in these seasons? You see, the irony that this truth regarding the hatred of the world towards the people of God is actually most clearly seen in the epistle of James. The very brother of Jesus who is telling him what he needs to do. In this moment You need to come to the Feast of Booths right now So that you can be celebrated Let the people see what you do Nobody does this in secret And Jesus says that Your heart is in line with the world And and my heart will always be preaching against it You see James chapter 4 says Friendship with the world is enmity with God And we want to ask James Oh, who taught you that one? I'm willing to bet James would respond as the brother of Jesus would say, My Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ, told me that. You see, Jesus likely felt the hurt and the pain of, of losing thousands in a day. And then the hurt and the pain of, of wanting to be killed by his own people. And then the hurt and the pain of, after all of that, even his brothers didn't believe in him. But in all that was going on in this passage, and all that was going on in Jesus' life, and all that's going on in our lives, Jesus' sovereignty reigns supreme. So my prayer this morning is that we wouldn't be like Jesus' brothers and demanding Him to work on our timeline. But in these seasons of uncertainty, may we wait. May we be patient. May we not be quick to speak, but quick to listen, quick to, to read His Word, and quick to pour into one another. So that we may we might have this deep desire for discipleship like Christ and that we may take comfort in his humanity and that we may trust him as sovereign lord let's pray father thank you so much for who you are thank you that lord even the worst external circumstances that we might face in this life, Lord, never, ever catch you by surprise. Lord, I thank you that you don't listen to us when we are in our flesh, that you don't listen to your brothers uh, like in this passage where they're demanding you to act now, Lord. For being honest, I, I've demanded you to act in a time that I, I, I thought I needed you. Lord, you never failed. You never left me. Lord, because of your humanity, you dwelt among me. And you dwell among me today. and You dwell among the believers that are listening to this sermon today. And you're sovereign over everything that's going on. Lord, may we take comfort in who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be to us. Lord, you're not just a good man, and you're certainly not a deceiver, but you are the sovereign Lord of all. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and nothing, not a virus, not a government, nothing can overthrow your sovereign ruling. Father, we thank you for your Son, And we pray this all in his name. Amen.